On today's complicated conversation, we welcome back Lauren Nossett. Lauren is a professor turned novelist with a PhD in German literature. Her debut, The Resemblance, won the ITW Thriller Award for Best First Novel. She currently lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Her second novel, The Professor, is out now. Welcome back, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and to see you both again. Yay, same. So before we get into that, I just want to take a step back and drop down in this moment a year ago, because I know, like selfishly, it's also was a big year for me. And for some reason, I have it in my head that so much of it is tied to our interview last year. For some reason, like things just started to happen after that. I think you asked me about my book and I was like, oh, it's nothing. And I didn't have an agent at that time. I didn't have a book deal. I had nothing. And so it just kind of felt like it started to snowball after that. But you were just getting ready to be a debut author with The Resemblance. You had no idea how it would be received and how you would feel about how it was received and and being out in the world. So I want to ask, like, and now here you are again doing it. And what has this last year been like for you? The ups and the downs of it all? Like, how do you look back on this past year? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good question. And it's kind of nice to take a moment to, because I think there's this thing where you just, you're just going and you don't reflect on what's been happening so let's let me try to think back to to this time last year. Yeah, I think there's that immediate initial excitement when the book comes out and then there's the tour so you actually get to go different places and interact with people who some people have read advanced copies but for the tour last year most people hadn't read the book yet because the tour happens the same week that the book comes yeah. out. So you're you're talking about the book, but you're trying to not give spoilers because a lot of people haven't read it. People can't necessarily ask questions that first week about the mm-hmm. book specifically. Right. They asked a lot about mm-hmm. me or the trajectory from becoming a professor to be, or from being a professor to becoming a, a novelist, but they couldn't ask about the plot or the characters. So it's been fun more recently. I've I've joined book clubs either in person Mm -hmm. or on Zoom of people who were reading the book. And then they have really specific questions about the text, which is really fun because then you get to engage with that world you created and people who have strong opinions about your characters and the actions, you know, that they take. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that trajectory has been the nice. And then being able to go to Thriller Fest this past year, you know, this past yeah. summer, connect with you. And yeah, it was so then, fun. I walked in and there I, I, you were like walking down the hallway and I was like, Oh my gosh, hi. It was <laughs> like the very first thing that happened. We ran into each other. And that you was such ever, a, a when I see surprise. people I haven't met in person. My first reaction is to think I know them from high school. There's just this in oh my, my brain. Let's so go funny. back, and like that's why I recognize you. So it yeah. always takes me a second to be like, "Oh wait, no, we we met in this format online, yes. and that's how we know each other." That's so yes. funny. And and how I love Thriller Fest. Did this was, but that, that was, was like the my first third time one. I had been. Yeah, yeah. How, and I, I did. You have a great experience. I think you did. I it was <laughs> lovely because I think. You know, you write so much, and I think you both do a great job. You're connecting with other authors all the time. You're talking about their trajectories. But for me, 
I don't have an MFA. This is the first I had written academic things, but there's, it's a very different world. So to be able to meet authors who I read or who I've been in contact on Instagram or whatever in person and find everyone so warm and lovely and inviting. Yeah. It was a really incredible experience just to find that community and to meet a lot of people in person that I had met, you know, online, but you're communicated with online, but not, not met in person. Person. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And Thriller Fest is a really exceptional community. So yeah, it's a good one. And then to win uh, the first book, uh, best first book award was just Mm. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, I literally didn't believe it. The people at my table had to tell me to get up and go talk because when they announced my name, I just sat there and in disbelief. I knew I was nominated, but I was just so excited to go to the festival. I didn't think, and I knew I was nominated, and I got to go to the dinner, but it just didn't occur to me that that anyone would win. Not someone, just that I would win that, but yes. that someone would be chosen and then that person would have to stand up in front of everyone and give us. Wait, this makes me yeah. feel so much better because when I see people at award shows and I mean more like TV and movie ones and they look so genuinely surprised, I'm like, but you knew you were nominated, but now yeah. you're explaining this in a way I could you see get that. Lost you, absolutely. The, and yeah. you're, yeah. it shouldn't be as much of a surprise, but it, but I can see how it would be actually with your it name as the one being called. A little surprise, yeah. And, yeah. and I, I did not obviously think about what I would say if I would win because I didn't think I didn't even get that far. So then I just stood mm-hmm. up and said a bunch in front of all these incredible author. You know, there's, <laughs> there's so many kind of legacy authors there, and I just I don't even remember what I said. I said something and <laughs> guided me, oh, and then I knew. Uh, Sean S.A. Crosby, he gave me a big bear hug after I got off the Aww. stage. And that was kind of the highlight of that whole weekend for me. Oh, he's oh, amazing. My yeah. gosh. Well, he, then here you are a year later. Yay. Okay. And so let's get to the professor. Why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about it, the elevator pitch? Yeah. So the professor is another campus thriller. It takes place uh, in Athens, Georgia. A student is found dead in his apartment on just off the university campus, and it turns out that the student is uh, a student of one of her mother's colleagues, Raina Sobek. She is immediately implicated in his death. There are rumors that maybe um, she and the student were having an affair, and this might have led to his untimely death. And so Marlet's mother asked her to to get involved and to prove Raina's innocence because she's certain that uh, this professor had nothing to do with it. So Marlet's put in this position, an impossible position, really, of trying to prove that something didn't happen. At the same time, she doesn't have the resources that she used to have since she's no longer a detective on the police force. So she has the skills, but not the resources. Mm -hmm. And so she has to take more risk. Uh, She has to get closer to the victim's life than Mm -hmm. ever before. And then in true fashion, she does this, you know, with real grit and determination and, you know, makes questionable decisions but the ones that ultimately get yeah. results <laughs> well she has to make up for that those lack of resources and when you have a lack of resources there you have a 
you know, you don't have as many boundaries, you don't have as many rules yeah, to abide true. by right. to get those resources. And we see her using that to the full extent. So I want to talk more about Marlet because how was that starting another story? Having she had it, her own arc in The Resemblance, and then you have to now put her in a new scenario. How was that process for you? Was it normal? You were like, okay, well, now meeting her at the end of these resemblance, clearly she's at a different place. I can take her through another arc. Or was that, um, you know, a, a challenge for you? How was that process? Yeah. I think to a certain extent, it was a bit of a challenge because the professor I wanted to make stand alone. I wanted to, it's a, you know, the mystery is unique to that story. Yeah. So I wanted it to be, you could pick up the professor without having read the resemblance first. The challenge of that was I had to work it. Marlette goes through a lot in the first book. So I had, yeah. to, I had to work in a, a lot of her, of that backstory and some traumatic backstory. You know, she's carrying the, the physical wounds from the first book, as well as a lot of the emotional wounds that she brought into the first book. So I had to find a way to work that in without information dumping, uh, which I think is always a challenge, Mm -hmm. especially in a thriller, because you want the pace to stay fast. And yet you have to make sure the reader has all this background information. And I also, there's things that she did, you know, in the first book, she has this relationship with the police force that is significantly changed in the second book. So I also Mm -hmm. had to think about that and think about the ways that her, interactions and relationships with other people in the forest, like Oliver and Teddy. So Teddy, her old partner and Oliver, who's another officer on the forest who she had a strained relationship with, who um, makes a a bigger appearance in this book, you know, how to navigate those relationships. But I will say it was fun to think like with Oliver, I got to develop his character a lot more in this book where he was a little more of a minor character in the first book. So that was that was fun. It was fun to have her parents in it again. And even Verena, who's the professor, she makes a small cameo appearance in The Resemblance. She's at a Thanksgiving dinner with uh, Marlette's parents. And so it was fun to bring her in and fully develop her in this book. Yeah, yeah. you get to use, uh, figure out which seeds you already planted and then, you know, kind of pull them out of The Resemblance yeah. and into this book. That right. that does sound fun. Yeah. yeah. So... You mentioned Marlet's mother is back again, and she's asked Marlet to help her uh, use these skills that she does have from the forest to help clear Verena's name, her fellow colleague in this Title IX investigation. And very early on, you wrote something that, that every once in a while I say this to her, like something just sort of jumps off the page at me, like a line. And it was from Marlet's point of view. And, and you wrote, truth, like anything buried in the bottom of a box, is rarely the bomb people think it will be. I hope my mother knows what she's asking and will forgive me for any truths I set free. And it just, I mean, that's mm. page 22. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> where are we going with this? What are the truths? And And it's so true that most people think that the pursuit of truth is a worthy endeavor. It is something we should want to do, but is it always? And what if you have to tell a lot of lies in the process, which Marlet does? So I was already so intrigued by how you were going to explore truth. And then towards the end, you gave me another line. You brought it back for me and you wrote, it's not true what they say. The truth will set you free. 
The truth only means you see the walls of your cage. Mm. <laughs> so I was like, oh my God, that is so true. Pardon the pun. So what I want to hear more about um, your exploration of truth in this novel. It's funny because I, I think I was on a podcast last year talking about the resemblance uh, with Charlie Lovett. And he asked, you know, one word that kind of comes up in the book a lot. And it was truth. So it's this, I think it's this mm. obsession of Marlitz. Well, maybe of mine that makes it into Marlitz <laughs> is, is the truth. And I don't know if that's that's writing. And I started writing the resemblance in 2018. So really when the truth was becoming, everyone was having their own mm. facts, their own yeah. truths. And it was becoming yeah. this malleable thing that maybe shouldn't be and comes with all, you know, all of the problems that, that come with that. Uh, but then, yeah, that there are at least on an, maybe on a political level, there should be some, you know, firm truths, but on a personal level that there are these truths that we, we keep for ourselves and, you know, we, we protect ourselves in a way if we, we keep truths. And then if you have someone from the outside, like Marlit, who's desperate to know the truth, he's just unearthing everything. What are the potential consequences of that? Love it. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I love. Uh, by the way, the truth sets you free and that distinction of it just means you see the walls of your cage. I mean, then you can go about you the work. Exactly. Yeah. The work mm -hmm, of true. setting yourself yes. free. Yes. But, right. but often without that truth, you can't even see those walls. Yeah. You can't even begin to deconstruct the narratives that are holding you in. You have yeah. to it's see it step first. one. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess step one is necessary, right? Yeah. You can't have it without step one, but also it's the beginning. Scary because then you have to do right. the thing to set yourself work. free from the cage that now you see. Because the, right. before the ignorance is bliss, we're going to use another phrase. If you didn't see the truth, then you didn't know you were in the cage. So the truth is right. illuminating, but then what are you going to do about it is the, the hard part. Yeah. yeah. And you have to do the work, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, you get a little bit into the work and then you go, I liked it better. I liked it better I, with I those. I wish I didn't know, right? I wish I didn't yes. know. And then I wouldn't have had to yeah, see the walls, do the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, what I love about both of your novels, and this is just, I just think this is probably who you are as a writer, is yes, there's a mystery, there's a dead body, there's an investigation, but you always tackle these big questions and, you know, themes that are just interwoven into that. And you said uh, on Instagram recently that you always want your novels to say something, and that with this one, you noted that you wanted to examine the rise of student alienation, depression, and substance abuse on college campuses. Ethan is reported to have died by suicide. And you write, he told me they've stopped diagnosing students. This is Verena telling Marlette that counselors on campus are understaffed as they demand for services rises. And then she says, he told me they've stopped diagnosing students because they latch onto words like depression and anxiety and shape them into identities that so many students feel invisible, that all they want is to be seen. And I've tried, I've tried to see them to let each and every one know they're important, valuable, and that they matter, but that's not enough. 
So tell us what you wanted to say. This is something you have firsthand experience as a professor seeing and watching kind of develop in real time and you wanted to add it into your novel. What were you exploring with this? Well, yeah, so it's interesting because that, you know, most of what is in the novel is fictionalized, but that section from Verena's, her narrative is actually based on a conversation that I had with um, counselors on campus at the college I was teaching with because I was finding so many of my students coming into office hours not to talk about schoolwork or maybe under the premise of talking about schoolwork. What they really wanted to talk about was what was going on in their lives. And it was a lot of them were struggling with depression, alienation. They were homesick. They were dealing with all all the real things that we all deal with on a day-to-day basis, but away from home, away from their parents, away from their support systems, or sometimes those support systems that we maybe assume students have, um, like warm homes to go back to, they, they didn't have and were struggling with that. And I was finding, so as a professor, you're trained in whatever subject to teach. For me, it was German literature. And even though I wanted to help my students with these things, I didn't have the tools um, in a way similar to Verena. So I actually talked to the counselors on campus about how to address, you know, these growing concerns of my students. And that's partially what I was told, that they were seeing a 30% increase in, in need for student mental health services weren't able to meet the demand. And also um, the line about that they had stopped diagnosing students with and, and labeling students with terms like depression was something else that was communicated to me. So those, those were some yeah. it's interesting um, you chose that section because that was actually drawn very much from real uh, life. Yeah. something that had happened. Um, and then, yeah, that real concern of you, you want to help you know that they're adults, but you also know that they're young adults. You know, often it's their first time away from home. But then you're really limited in the way that yeah. you can't help it. So you have this kind of fear of what's going on, what they tell you, what they don't tell you on top of that um, without the the tools. So it, in a way, I think it was to raise awareness of what was going on on campus. It's becoming – I was writing this in – 2020, so before the start yeah. of the pandemic, but also during the pandemic, where I think during the pandemic it was becoming more of a conversation um, about just how alienated and um, the mental health issues on on campus. But I wanted to, I think in a way, bring attention to what I was seeing on a day-to-day basis, but also show the students, but show the effect it was having on the faculty, that the yeah. faculty mm. were often struggling with their own mental health issues, which is something that you can see in Verena. And and then on top of that, struggling with how to, how to, to support help. the students. Yeah. Yeah, it really bleeds over. And that actually leads perfectly to my next question, because this is, as you're saying, also an exploration of the challenges of being a professor, which again, is personal for you. And in your acknowledgments, you said, Anne Lamont writes that we are species that needs and wants to understand who we are. And in many ways, this book is an attempt to understand the world I occupied while writing it. Um, So I always think that 
I would have loved to be a college professor. I mean, in my, I have these very rose colored glasses of it, you know? Um, but I think through Verena, you paint a much more difficult picture, you know, the, in the ways we're discussing in terms of what they have to deal with. But I want to read something because I thought, oh, this was just so perfect and so perfectly captures it. So you said, but then they asked me about work and I start complaining about the long hours and lack of sleep. How I thought being a professor smelled like old books and warm sweaters, grading papers while listening to music, a mug of tea in my hand, Jagger in my lap and Christopher by my side. When really it tastes like stale coffee and hastily shoveled snacks in front of my computer and feels like lightheadedness when I miss a meal. It smells like mildew and long nights in my office and sounds like students complaining in the halls and passive aggressive department emails. It's catching students cheating and turning a blind eye, or confronting them and watching them lie to your face. It's the prickly feeling of students lingering just a little too long outside your door. It's colleagues pretending they don't understand you because of your accent. It's never feeling good enough, smart enough, German enough, American enough, or professorial enough. Whew. So um, good. So good. So the taste, good. the smells, everything. <laughs> um, but So what did you learn? What did writing this help you understand about who you are and about being a professor? And can I ask, did that section just pour out of you? Or was that one that you just turned over so many times because you're like, this is my life. I have to just like write this out a hundred different ways. I think a lot of the Verena sections poured out of me because I was still, it's funny to to hear you read it now because I'm not teaching anymore and I'm not in it, but I can remember the feeling of being in it and the way you, you read that Kate with just how you were enunciating it. It's like, Oh yeah, that is how it Because it's written. That's written so well. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think like you, I, as a student really romanticize the life of a professor because as a student, you only see the professor through your interactions with them. So you only see your professor behind the lectern, you know, in the classroom or in their office where they're surrounded by their books. And you don't know everything else that's going on behind the scenes. You don't know, you know, how many hours it takes to write that lecture, you know, all the department meeting politics, which, you know, get into the book or the administration or the assess, just, just, you don't know the rest of it. Right. And so it's very mm-hmm. easy to romanticize it. And I had totally done that. And I think for me, transitioning from student to graduate student to professor was the slow pulling back of the curtain 
of what yeah. academic life was. And maybe I was a bit naive and not paying attention because I, I almost feel like as a graduate student, I should have been a little bit more aware of what was going on. Mm-hmm. But I, it really wasn't until, you know, I was a professor myself that was like, oh, this is, you know, there are some parts that are really, really wonderful. And I loved, yeah. I loved teaching. I loved the interaction, most of the interactions with the students. Uh, I loved the, some of the relationships that I developed with my colleagues, but then like anything, yeah. you know, there are the yeah. politics and the late nights and yeah, all the other the stuff. stuff you you don't yeah. see. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about the structure of this novel because I believe it begins with this, a section called Her. Is yes. that correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. Right from the start. And then those are interspersed throughout the novel. And then there's also some hymn chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's primarily told from Marlet's point of view. Yes. Why did you structure it this way? And, and most importantly, when in the writing process did you come to this? Did you always know you needed these other perspectives? Or was it when you got to the end of a draft and you're like, wait, there's some things that Marlet wouldn't necessarily know. I have to put them in here, kind of edit this through to help the reader. Tell us about that process of, of figuring out these points of view in the structure. Yeah, I knew there would be Marlitt's sections and the her section. So Marlitt and Brain. I don't I don't remember at what point I decided to I think when I decided to do the him sections, I decided to him and her versus just Marlitt and Verena. Mm-hmm. But mm. Verena's sections were actually some of the earliest that I wrote. There's a scene on the the on a plane that ends up being midway through the book, and that was actually the first scene I had written actually after a creepy experience I had had on a plane and I just wanted to let, I'm one of those people who I've stopped doing this now, but I've done this a few times (laughs) where like, I will sit next to someone on a plane and just that I will tell them everything about my, you know, enough that they can easily find me, you know, like, especially when I was teaching, you know, there's one or two German professors at any of these small liberal arts colleges I was teaching. So just telling them I was a German professor at a specific college would be enough information they could just show up, you know. Um, And I had had this experience where I had done that. And I had just written kind of, I kept thinking about it. And uh, so I decided to free write just to get it out of my mind. And then that ended up yeah. making uh, a scene in the book and ended up being told from Verena's perspective. But um, so I knew there would be Marlette and Verena. And then probably about, I tend to at two thirds of the way in, so 60,000 words, that's when I start thinking, oh, you need to write a draft or a, um, a outline and you need to think more about what the structure <laughs> like, of this what will the- be. <laughs> uh, and so that I think is about when I felt like the helm section started coming out. And then really late in the process when I was working with my editor, we decided to add more hem sections so that they balanced out the her sections. Cause initially okay. I just had a handful. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love hearing Very about that. Effective. So- yeah, and I want to also ask about your process. So publishing is very delayed from writing, right? You talked about writing The Resemblance in 2018. And I think when we spoke last year, you were already, were you done with The Professor at that point? Or Yeah. yeah. And so uh, you've got to be on another book or in somewhere in that process. So what is that process like for you? And I guess you didn't have the 
pressure or the anything of knowing what it was like to be a published author by the time you were mostly through the professor. So, mm-hmm. but now that's you have a new book, and do you feel different expectations for book three? And how are you managing kind of the emotional pieces, uh, expectations, and feelings of of being out there in the world with the solitary process of writing? Yeah, I so that. Uh, to your question of writing book three and is there a different expectation? Yes. I think a lot of times, so I had a a two book deal. So when my editor bought the resemblance, he bought the professor too. And both I had really strong drafts for already. So even, you know, when I got the deal, I had these two strong drafts. And then of course we, especially with the professor, I revised it more, but I, Yeah, it's a lot. I think what a lot of people find with their second book, if they have a one book deal that comes out and then they really struggle with the second book, I'm experiencing with my third because I had the two books written before the first one came out. And now with the third one, yes, the the pressure has changed. I now know what it's like to you know, get one star reviews on Goodreads. And so you you try to not (laughs) let that affect you or your writing, but you can't, you're human, you know, it still gets in your head. Um, So, and, and just even the sales expectations, I, you know, I just didn't think about, I just wanted to publish a book and to have it read. And I didn't think about, well, your publisher has bought the book. It needs to, you know, so all of these things now I think are in my head as I'm working on the third book. And initially, I had written the third book to be a third in the Marlet series. That's what I was um, going to ask. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But now I'm revising it to be a standalone and a totally different voice than Marlet's. Um, so, and I'm moving it. It was going to be based in Athens. I'm actually moving it to Nashville because oh, I'm based yay. here. And it, it actually has to do with the music industry, which there is a big music industry in Athens, but there's obviously a much bigger music industry here. So um, it was a big thing to wrap my head around to do this revision. But now that I'm working on it, I'm really excited. Um, And the voice of the narrator in this new book is so different from Marlit. And it's actually really fun to take Marlit's, you know, she's staring down a suspect and my new narrator is like, I just want to give him a hug. Like she's just very different. Yeah. Like, uh, so it's, it's been fun and it, it's bringing a new energy to something. Yeah. That's what I would think. On, so. oh, yeah. I love that. I love yeah. that. And it's full of ups and downs still, right? It's yeah, oh, yeah. Look at her face. <laughs> you guys can't see the facial expression. Yeah. 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 It, I mean, yeah. I think some days you have good writing days and you're like, I know what I'm doing and I won an award. So that must mean something. Then other days you just think, I, I don't know. Yeah. No idea. I, I will say I'm yeah. very proud of the professor. I think uh, I'm proud of the resemblance too, but I think I learned a lot writing that one. I had a better outline working on the professor, which I think allowed me to to do smarter twists that I'm really proud of. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. and oh, I love that. So I'm, I'm anxious though, because I am so proud of it. I'm anxious to see how it's received. Right. Right. Of course. Now, of you, course. Yeah. You, ha- you feel more invested in that way, but also yeah. just knowing, will it measure up to the, the resemblance and, right. and what does that even mean? Like, right. What yeah. does it mean? Yeah. So many oh, existential, oh. you know, yes. <laughs> built into publishing, I think. 
Trust yes. me. I know. I know. And is there anything that you come back to when you're like, okay, like, let me zoom out and this is what I want to do, right? This is, I want to be writing these books. I'm, there are so many people who are, would, would be so happy to be in my, you know, my Shoes. existential dread soup, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? What do you have those moments? How do you get back to it? For me, I will tell you, I was in it this morning. I pulled some tarot cards and the tarot was like, wake up, lady. You have what so many people want, what you wanted, Corinne. You have what you wanted. Yes. So be happy yeah. about it. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I just remind myself that I love it. I love to read. Yeah. I love mm-hmm. to write. I Even when it's a challenge... I, I feel like I also write because I have to. Someone at, asked me in an interview recently to talk about resilience because I, mm-hmm. I think I told y'all last time that I had written six books before I wrote The Resemblance and The Resemblance was mm-hmm. the first that was published. And wow. so in some ways that seems like that's resilience, but I I really think it was just stubbornness. Like it just didn't occur to me to stop writing. And I think that's because I love it. I just, I love world building and character development. And, and I think that's because I'm a reader at heart. I love reading. And so it's Mm -hmm. only natural that I want to, to write and create, I think. Yes. Yeah. And clearly you're, you're tackling big questions with your work. And so what better way to do that than through fictional characters where you can control the whole situation, right? Like (laughs) maybe you can have them have a thing. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I know for me. Everything is. (laughs) (laughs) Like so much of what I write is having a conversation and I'm worried now. And I'm already thinking about this. Like, some of the things I write are things I believe. And then some of them are like the worst thing anyone's ever said to me. So, and then I'm trying to have a conversation I didn't get to have because in that moment, I didn't know better. I didn't have the words. I didn't have, I, you know, I didn't have the, the perspective. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm equally compelled to do that Mm -hmm. through the writing. I love that. I love it though. It's so funny. This is not, shouldn't, make me think of this, but I play really competitive tennis. And when I'm having trouble in a match, I don't think people always think about their strokes or what are they doing wrong? I remind myself that I love it. That's what I tell myself. You love this game, Kate. I never thought of that. It's exactly what you're saying. I don't forget everything else. What are you, what are you doing here? You're here because you love it. So, and I listen, I love to win more than anybody else. So I'm not, it's not that I'm like, Oh, whatever (laughs) happens, I love it. It's not that it's just, what are you here for? That That's why. That's what's going to keep bringing you back. And uh, that's so funny. I never thought about that. But that is what I say to myself. So, oh, yes. And this I is like, perfect like for... Uh, to yeah. so many areas of your life. Yes, it's true. That's right. But we always end with, what are you loving? So this was quite the segue. Um, and we usually, and we still will, take any and all um, recommendations, books, TV shows, podcasts. But I did did see on your Instagram that before leading up to the resemblance, you had posted your favorite um, sort of dark academia novels. And for this one, you're doing like your favorite social thrillers, which by the way, you guys are thriller people. I didn't even know that was a thing. I now understand what it is, but I don't know all the terms or subgenres. So I know you're going to be, you know, sharing some of those favorites too. So one of the, and this will pop up um, with the social thrillers countdown, I read Panther's Gap 
uh, earlier this year that was also put out by Flatiron. James McLaughlin is the author. And I'm really into, so not just social thrillers, but eco-thrillers. So thrillers that Mm, focus on environmental concerns. The fields. The fields, yes. Yeah, is Erin Young, right? The fields. Yeah, she um, was at Thriller Fest last year too. Yes, she was. You're right. I think she's also a Flatiron author, I think. Yes, she is. She is. Um, yes. And the, so, so Panther's Gap would be one. His first novel is called Bare Skin. That would also fit into that category. I think I posted this one today. Once There Were Wolves uh, mm. is another social thriller that I just really loved and it felt really important. Her first book's called Migrations. Same thing. Yes. Not, yes. Uh, S.A. Crosby. All of his books, um, but Razorblade Tears, I still think is one of the most powerful books I've read in a long, long time. I was just thinking, I was like, I haven't been watching anything, but I did watch the second season of Wheel of Time. I don't know if y'all are into fantasy at all, but I really enjoyed. I enjoyed two second series of fantasy. Oh, the Shadow and Bone. uh, Uh That came out maybe earlier this year, but I felt like the second season was just as good as the first, which that always makes me really excited yeah. and that's how I felt yeah. with Wheel of Time too. Nice. So yeah, wow. that's that's what All I've been right. reading and yeah. And watching. Okay. I just realized in this moment <laughs> why I connect you with feeling like as soon as we talked, everything started to come together for my book last year because you recommended the cloisters. And I think yes. it had just come out. Yeah. And my edit her Katie Hayes who uh-huh. wrote The Cloisters, her editor, Natalie Halleck, bought my book. So oh. I'm like, and I had not heard of The Cloisters. And I was like, until you recommended it, I yeah. looked it up and I was like, why have I not heard of this book? What, like, it's totally in my strike zone. Why mm-hmm. have I not heard of this? Bought it right away and was like, yeah. And now there that connection go. That's is, the connection. Yeah. I actually, yeah. so we had connected because I think The Cloisters came out maybe November 1st, and my book came out the 7th. And since we were both mm-hmm. in a stark academia world, we were in all these article write-ups together. And so we we ended up connecting on Instagram. Uh, and especially we both had, they were both debuts, so we were new authors. Mm-hmm. And we connected at VoucherCon this summer, which was really, so yeah. we had lunch a couple times. And it was just really nice to you know, uh, be on, on yeah. the, you know, have, have our books come out at the same time, ha- having our second books, you know, hers is in the works. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I'm like hoping uh. there's like this author class of those of us who, who have books <laughs> yes. coming out around the same time when we get to share yes. these experiences, yeah. like even talking about your cover, Corinne, and like the excitement of that and, and holding on yeah. to that as we have long careers as writers. So. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's like what you said, the community. That's what it is yeah. a solitary thing, the yeah. writing of the book, but the community that then comes out of it is yeah. that's what's going to. And the community is so vital for, because publishing is such a weird world. <laughs> mm. And I don't know, I could get through the writing on my own. I mean, beta readers and people that I trust to read early drafts and tell me what's not working. But I, I'm just got a, a pinky toe in the, in the publishing world. And I reach out to so many people. I'm like, help me, help me. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. What's happening? What is this normal? Is this not normal? Yeah. Spoiler alert, nothing is normal. Yeah. Nobody has 
But nobody the more people has the answers. To, the better idea you have of what all the possibilities are, and that's what I've learned. Uh, Wendy Walker was really kind to me when the first oh, book came out. She yeah, blurbed it, and then I did this article for Write or Die, Write or Die, which is a great yes. magazine with with writers of advice, and it was something like ten authors share with debut novelists what they wish they had known for their debut or something like that. And part of hers was just talking about all the things you can do for yourself because I think it, I didn't the the biggest difference between the first book and the second book coming out is for the first book I didn't know what I didn't know. And now mm. I know kind of <laughs> what I didn't know, what what can happen, though I didn't even know what questions to ask. It was all so new. I was just like a deer in headlights just you know yeah. I had no idea what was going on. Now I feel, I still feel like I don't know what's going on, but I have a better idea of of at least the questions to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. she was a big advocate of advocating for yourself, reaching out to other authors, reaching out to bookstores, you know, all of the things that, of course, the publisher will help you do, but, you know, that they're, that you can do things too, um, which was something I just should have known, but didn't because I didn't know the right questions to ask. So. Well, yeah. so much, uh, and I won't, I'm not, I won't speak for you, but for me, so much of wanting to be published and be in this world was because I thought like someone will help me now. And so right. <laughs> I wasn't automatically thinking like, how can I still help myself? That was, right. I was like, okay, now I have people who will help me, which of right. course they will. And yeah. I can't design a cover and, you know, do all the things that everyone else is doing, but you can still help yourself. And mm-hmm. that maybe is the benefit of having been at this for a while, like I have too. Right. Or even just asking, yeah. you know, festivals to go to. I didn't know which ones to ask. So this weekend is Southern Festival of Books here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until I talked to some other authors that I, I knew about it. And then I could ask my publisher, you know, can you know, will you, will you send me there? I mean, I'm just... Yeah, drive over in the morning, yeah. but you know, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. make sure the books are there and all of that stuff. But it's yes. you know, mm-hmm. even that, which seems very obvious, if you're not an active participant in, the, in that world, you might not know. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I also love the back. Just to close the loop on that, not like there's no one answer. That gives me relief because usually. I see something happen and I go, oh, I know what this means. This means I'm doomed or this means, you know, whatever it is. And then I'll ask someone else, did that happen to you? No, but I, you know, this other thing happened or yes, that happened to me. And no, it just, it really widens my, like not decision tree, but like, oh, there's lots of things that can be happening here. I don't, it is not a one for one, like X happens and then Y necessarily happens. A lot of different paths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I am that. Oh, this is something you should do, Karen. If you haven't already, sign up for the debut authors breakfast and class at Thriller Fest next year. Okay. Um, okay. Because I haven't as, done it. Okay. Well, you should absolutely do it because it was so helpful. Because you, I don't know how there were probably twenty four of us or something debut authors, and you get to talk to those people here about what their process was, what support they're getting from their publisher, what they're having to do for themselves. They also had Mark Graney and Lisa Gardner were our Mm -hmm. kind of 
established author guides and we sat in a room with them under this cone of silence. So I won't tell what all was said because I think that's the point of the cone of silence. Yes. But just hearing them them talk about their trajectories and just how it wasn't necessarily linear. Linear. So you think like you get that bestseller and then you're golden and can just keep writing whatever you want, publishing, and people are going to buy your books, promote your books. Um, but that that's not always the case, that there are still, even if you hit that kind of gold standard of getting on a bestseller mm-hmm. list, there are a lot of ups and downs, um, which is in a way, mm-hmm. I found it encouraging. I guess it can also I do too. daunting, I, but I actually yeah. find it, you know, okay, like there's yeah. no one set way, like you said. Yeah. No, I find it comforting because I think like you said earlier, I want a long career. And right. so- there can't be a sustained, you know, long career with just bestseller after bestseller, bestseller. And so to know that the ups and downs come, you know, okay, write it out. Right. Just keep working. Yeah. Exactly. Because you love it. Yeah. We bring it back to because you love it. You love what you do. Love of the craft, the love of storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Reading, writing, yeah. yes, all of it. Tennis. Oh, well, Lauren, this was yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, this yeah. was I mean, so incredible. For my running, I'm trying to get back into yes. running, and I just be like, okay, remember what Kate said? You're doing this because yeah, you, there love you it. go. Because <laughs> you love it. I'm going up that big hill. I'm doing it because I love it. <laughs> like I have not applied it to running yet, and I sort of run, but I, you know, I'm not sure I love it. That's why I can't trick myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it was incredible chatting with you, Lauren. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks no, for again, having the me. The professor to talk to you all is again. out now. Yes.